God, we ask this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds with the truth of your word, that your Holy Spirit would move to kindle our hearts with your love, and that you would bend back our crooked wills to be within your will. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this morning, I want us uh, to begin by thinking back to uh, the last century, the 20th century. Uh, I teach uh, some middle schoolers and high schoolers uh, Latin on the side, and uh, it was a cruel realization to me that all of my students were born in an entirely different century than I, by about uh, two decades. And so when I made references to things like 9-11, uh, they said, uh, Pastor Ewing, uh, we were six months old when that happened. We don't know what you're talking about. But uh, I want us to think back into the 20th century this morning. Those of you who were not born in the 20th century uh, can think back uh, because these are, are well-known uh, events. The world witnessed uh, a massive rise in secularization in the 20th century. Religion was pushed more and more to the fringes of culture and society, uh, especially in Europe and in a lesser degree uh, in the United States. But along with this rise in secularization came the rise in totalitarian regimes. The communist philosopher Karl Marx inspired a number of these totalitarian regimes, uh, the Soviet Union chief among them. Marx, in a well-known passage, said, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. For him, religion was used to comfort the suffering poor with the promise of a more cheery afterlife, in his mind a lie, and to numb and to paralyze them in order to keep them in their place by those above them. Well, these totalitarian communist regimes were responsible for upwards of 100 million deaths in the 20th century. On the other hand, totalitarian nationalist regimes, like the Nazis, were responsible for their own chaos and destruction. Whereas Marx sought to destroy religion outright, Hitler would tolerate re religion, but only so long as it supported and did not interfere with the state's business, including its dirty business. In a 1937 speech at a May Day parade in Berlin, Hitler proclaimed, So long as they, Christians, the church, concern themselves with their religious problems, the state does not concern itself with them. But so soon as they attempt by any means whatsoever, by letters, encyclica, or otherwise, to arrogate to themselves rights which belong to the state alone, we shall force them back into their proper spiritual, pastoral activity. We can sense in these uh, statements the resistance to the rule of Christ. Well, Hitler ultimately seduced many of the churches in Germany to support his wicked reign, 
And those that resisted, he marginalized and even put some to death. Over 20 million people died directly because of Nazi ideology, which is a number that does not even include combat deaths. The end result of these secularized totalitarian regimes were the European countryside trampled under the jackboots of brutal armies, the loss of countless individual lives, entire historic European cities reduced to rubble and ash, and the creation of a bomb that could vaporize entire cities. Is that doom and gloomy enough for this morning? Well, it was against this backdrop of the rise of secularization and the, and the horrors that emerged from it that Pope Pius XI instituted the Feast of Christ the King in 1925, this feast that we, even us Protestants, continue to celebrate and memorialize today. You see, he perceived that Christianity, Christ, and his church were being cast aside in culture and society, and he warned of the horrible consequences that would result. Uh, the well-known uh, Reformed pastor from Manhattan, Tim Keller, in his book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods, he puts it this way, When love of one's people becomes an absolute thing, it turns to racism. When love of equality turns into a supreme thing, it can result in hatred and violence toward anyone who has lived a privileged life. It's the settled tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods. Ernest Becker wrote that in a society that has lost the reality of God, many people will look to romantic love to give them the fulfillment they once found in religious experience. Nietzsche, however, believed that it, money would replace God. But there's another candidate to fill this spiritual vacuum. We can also look to politics. We can look upon our political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine, and turn our political activism into a kind of religion. The Feast of Christ the King challenges us to take an honest look at our lives to see whether we really do believe that Jesus Christ is King and whether we're submitting to his lordship in our lives. I want us to take a look at Matthew chapter 25 this morning because it asks us just this question. Is Jesus really King and Lord in our lives? But before we can jump into Matthew 25, we need to put Matthew chapter 25 into its proper spiritual and scriptural context. So it, as well as most things, goes right back to the beginning. God created Adam and Eve and he appointed them as emissaries in creation. Adam and Eve, all of humankind, you and I as well, were created in the image of God. We're meant to bear the image of the king in creation, to enjoy the creation, to subdue it on behalf of the king, to speak God's word, the king's word into creation, and to direct the praises of the world back up to God. But we all know the story, right? How it went. Adam and Eve rejected God's authority. They wanted to be gods unto themselves. They wanted to rule themselves. They rejected their king. But God did not abandon them, and he did not abandon us. God began to call a people to himself through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God led his people 
as their king under the leadership of Moses and Joshua into the land where God himself would lead them and rule them as their king. This people's name, of course, was Israel. But we discover in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that Israel rejects God as their king. In verse 5 of chapter 8, the elders of Israel come to the prophet Samuel and they say, Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. And God makes it clear what they have done in verse 7, saying, Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. And so Israel repeats the sin of Adam and Eve. Samuel warns Israel that their king will abuse them, he'll lead them into idolatry, he'll use their sons, their daughters for his own ends. But before we stand in judgment over Israel, think about it from their perspective. When you take a look around at other nations, you're this weak, fragile nation in the midst of powerful empires, and you see the might and the pride of a king dressed in purple robes, it'd be easy to long for that show of might and pride. And when other nations come to meet your king, you have to awkwardly explain that you don't really have a king that you can present to them, because God is your king. It could get embarrassing after a while. And then you hear, you want to hear or speak to your leader, and you have to go through a prophet like Samuel in order to speak to God or hear from God. It's incredibly inefficient. Uh, I remember back when I was younger, uh, you know, I would pester my brother enough, and eventually he would uh, force me to speak to him through another medium, usually one of our parents. And it was incredibly annoying. He knew how to get back at me. It was inefficient. It was exhausting and annoying after a while. Well, it would be incredibly tempting to ask for a king who could immediately speak, speak his word to you. He could immediately hear all your petitions. <clears throat> so let's be honest. We all follow the pattern of the Israelites all the time. We're seduced by the might, the pride, the promises of people and things other than God, idols. We seek wisdom and insight from the world, something immediate instead of waiting on and hearing from God and his word. Well, the result for the Israelites, the end result for us when we follow them, is nothing short of disaster. Israel ended up being drawn into the worship of other gods. The kingdom of Israel ended up being rent and divided into two. And God's people ended up conquered, enslaved, dragged off into foreign nations. The foreign nations who had the kings that Israel lusted after like Babylon and Assyria. Even Israel's greatest king, David, whose scripture says was a man after God's own heart, even King David falls into sin, the result of which wreaked havoc on God's people. Like them, you and I are drawn into the worship of other things. We end up divided. The church ends up divided. We're dragged off and we're enslaved by the things we give our lives to. But thanks be to God that that's not where the story ends. God promises to come and to be the king of his people once more. And even better, God the Father promises to send his very son to be born into the line of King David so that God's people might have a real, living king in the flesh whom we can touch, who speaks immediately to us, who invites us to come and be healed, 
who brings perfect peace. And so this brings us to the passage we heard from Ezekiel chapter 34 this morning. The prophet Ezekiel promises that a time will come when the Lord God will return to be king over the, his people. The Lord God promises to seek the lost, bring back those who have strayed, bind up the injured, strengthen the weak. And the Lord God will judge those who have fattened themselves on injustice. And the Lord God declares, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. So finally, this brings us back to Matthew chapter 25. Here, Jesus is clearly saying that the Son of Man, He Himself, is the Messiah King from Ezekiel 34, the King in the line of King David, who will stand as King and Judge at the end of time. But it's really easy to go wrong and to misunderstand this passage. We can look at this passage and conclude wrongly. Oh no, Jesus is going to stand in judgment over the world I'd better get in line and feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick and imprisoned. These are all good things, and this is part of what we need to learn from this passage. But Jesus is not a moralistic God who needs to be satisfied by our sacrifices. The gospel tells us that though we are all helpless in our sin, that Jesus Christ, our King, our representative, has lived the perfect life on our behalf. He's given everything for us, even laying down his life for us upon the cross. So we don't need to satisfy Jesus with our good works. We can't satisfy Jesus with our good works. It's Jesus instead who has satisfied the Father for us. And notice, if we're go to go about and to try to do enough good works, we'll act in our own wisdom, Using our own politics, our own agenda, we'll use Jesus to undergird our own aims. We'll push him aside as we get to the work and roll up our sleeves. We turn the poor into tokens we hope to turn in for our salvation. We become just like the monsters who pushed religion, Christianity, the church aside that I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. So how do I know that that scripture is really telling us this in this passage this morning. Sounds like I'm undercutting Jesus's hard words for us. We'll look in verse 37. After Jesus welcomes the righteous sheep into the kingdom and tells them that they fed, clothed, visited him, they don't respond by saying, yeah, we know Jesus, we tried real hard to earn your favor. We did the things you wanted us to do. Instead, what do they say? Lord, when did we do these things for you? You see, the sheep weren't trying to earn the favor of Jesus the King. That, Rather, these are the sheep who recognize and believe deep down in the depths of their being that all things belong to Jesus the King. And that Jesus the King does not lord his power, but that his power is made perfect in weakness. That Jesus is the king born not in a regal palace, but in a feeding trough for animals. That Jesus is the son of God from eternity, and yet gives up all to be clothed in our flesh, not in royal purple robes. That Jesus is lifted high upon a cross, not on a golden throne. 
that Jesus is the conquering king, not by sword, but by laying down his life for sinners. When we truly believe that Jesus, this crucified king, is king over all, and when we come to accept all that Jesus has done for us in giving his life for our sake, then we realize that Jesus the king draws especially close to the lost, the poor, the oppressed. And so we draw close to them because we hope to draw closer to our Lord and King. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is Lord over all. Do you believe that? Does your life reflect that truth? This is what the gospel lesson asks of us this morning. Your gifts, talents, careers, families, finances, they're not your own. These have been graciously given to you by Christ the King. We have the honor of having the King, Jesus Christ, appointing us as his emissaries in all these different places. Do you cling tightly to these things as your own? Jesus invites you to submit to his lordship, that his blessing might be worked out through your faithfulness to him, to his kingdom, to the people his heart beats most strongly for. I began this sermon by noting the awful consequences of pushing Jesus aside and refusing to recognize him as king over all. If we're honest with ourselves, we all push Jesus aside in our lives. We refuse to submit to him as our king. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, he served reluctantly in the First World War. He lost most of his friends in that war. And then he had to witness the world thrust into the Second World War just a couple of decades later, all because of what we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Tolkien described the history of the world as the long defeat. By this he meant that for all of our human progress, all the good that we've accomplished, we can never ultimately hope in and of ourselves to save ourselves from the mess we find ourselves in. Some might say that if Tolkien's right, then we might as well just throw up our arms and give up. But the Christian hope is a profound hope. The Christian's hope is in Jesus, who is king over all. Our hope is in Jesus, who in the eyes of the world was defeated on the cross, but who the church knows rose victorious and rules even now from the right hand of the Father. The Feast of Christ the King comes at the perfect time. Here at the end of the church year, we're reminded once again that Christ is king over all. And yet next week, Advent comes around again to begin the whole thing over. When we wait upon the coming of Christ our king. Today, Jesus asks you, am I your king? And if we're honest with him, we'll recognize all those places where we're, we are resisting his rule. Advent is a perfect time, brothers and sisters, to learn again to receive him as your king. Jesus invites us to live with great hope for him in this world, in the long defeat, and to share that hope with the world. Will you receive him once again today? Let us pray. God, we thank you that Jesus is king over all. We thank you that all things are in his hands. Lord, the long defeat of this world can drive us to despair. It can paralyze us. 
let us live with the great hope of knowing that you are king over all, that you have drawn us to yourself to make us your emissaries in your creation, to live as uh, your emissaries in your kingdom. Lord, help us to do that well. Help us to humbly submit to you as our king. Help us to lay down our lives as you laid down your life for us, Jesus. Our hope is in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.